Welcome to Faith and Family, a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. And now from Greenville, South Carolina, here's your host, Steve Wood. Hello, this is Steve Wood, and welcome to Faith and Family. This is episode 356. And just so you know, this is a part two to our previous episode where we asked the questions, what's happening in our world? And why is our church, our country, and our culture so quickly slipping into crisis mode? And those with eyes open, and I assume most of you listening to this broadcast have your eyes open, at least I hope you do, you see the effects of the encroaching darkness, but just might be bewildered as what's the cause of such powerful, widespread, and intensifying move towards apostasy and darkness. I gave you the key verse to understanding this in our last episode, but it definitely bears repeating. It's Jesus, his teaching, recorded in Matthew 24, 37. As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And from the lips of Jesus, we have a vital connection between Genesis 6, which describes the days of Noah, which caused God to bring the judgment of the flood. And there's a connection between that and the coming of the Son of Man, the second coming in which he will judge the world, and this time not with a flood, but with fire. And we looked at Genesis 6, verses 1 through 4, and we saw what was described is a fundamental violation of God's order when fallen angels came to earth and had relations with women and bore Nephilim, or giants, some kind of genetic mutants, who in turn taught things like warfare, skills of seduction, false worship, and abortion. They were corrupting the world. And that was episode 355, and I gave you multiple sources of scriptural support for this view of Genesis 6. And some would call this Jewish myth, Jewish legend, but I gave you Jewish scripture. And if you want to call it Jewish tradition, call it valued Jewish tradition. I'm referring to First Enoch, which I quoted at the end of episode 355, and First Enoch is quoted in the letter of Jude in the New Testament explicitly from the first chapter of First Enoch, which describes the world in the days of Noah and these angels coming to earth having relations with women. That's what First Enoch's all about. Just before we get going, we're going to get to the cause of this now, because we're looking to the days of Noah. This is what went on, what would be causing this to happen in the end times. I'm going to just give you a couple of quickies from the early church fathers and early church writers. Uh, this is from Justin Martyr. He says, but the angels transgressed this appointment and were captivated by the love of women and begat children, and besides, they afterwards subdued the human race to themselves. They became the big rulers. In many cases, they were worshiped as gods. Irenaeus says, and the angels who transgressed became apostates. Tertullian said, 
there are carcasses of the giants of old time. I find this pretty interesting because, you know, bones can last centuries. Uh, it will be obvious enough that the bones are not absolutely decayed for their bony frames are still extant, even lately in this very city. So in the early church, you even had archaeological evidence of the giants. And this is from the historian Josephus in his famous work, The Antiquities. He says, For many angels of God, accompanied with women, begat sons that proved unjust and despisers of all that was good, an account of the confidence they had in their own strength. For the tradition is, listen carefully, these men did what resembled the acts of those whom the Grecians call giants. Now, if you're engaging in classical education, you do need to use discernment because the heroes of classical Greek were utterly corrupt, demonic, moral monsters, okay? So uh, it's talking about the same thing, Greek mythology and Old Testament scripture, but it's too completely 180 different views of what was going on. Now, obviously the flood took out these giants in their bodily form, but their spirits were put in prison. In Jude 6 again, it says that the angels that kept not their own position, but left their proper dwelling, have been kept by him, by God, in eternal chains in the nether gloom. And very interesting, our first pope wrote on this in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. It's interesting. It says, For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of nether gloom to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah. Where the English translation, I'm reading from the Revised Standard Version, the Catholic edition, when it says pits of nether gloom, in Greek, this is the word Tartarus. And it's not a word from the Old Testament Greek translation of the Bible. It's a word from Greek mythology where all their heroes went. <laughs> St. Peter says, they're in what we would call hell, but he uses the terms that the Greeks did, and this is where the corruption of the world. So they were chained, they were put in pits of nether gloom and kept until the end. All right, now we go to the book of Revelation, and I know you want to get there all the time, but this is why you have the wind up and the pitch. The pitch is easy. In Revelation 9, it opens this, the fifth angel blew his trumpet. And I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key of the shaft of the bottomless pit. Okay, he had the ability to open the pit. And he opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Uh, Dr. Beale an evangelical biblical scholar who my personal opinion is he's the best in the book of Revelation. He says this darkness in Revelation 9 
symbolizes spiritual blindness. And there is a comment that Dr. James Dobson made several years ago. I don't know. It was just in a course of a broadcast I was listening to. But he he, he was you know, kind of going, whoa, to our world, our culture, what's happening to America? And he says, it seems to me somebody has gotten hold of the world's rheostat and just turned the lights down. What a better way of describing in common terminology what St. John was describing in Revelation 9, when the pit is opened, this great darkness comes upon the earth. The Navarre Bible, the Catholic Study Bible, says of this passage, behind this lies the notions that demons are incarcerated in the bowels of the earth. And this writer is trying to convey the idea that when the fifth trumpet is blown, God is going to let these demon forces loose. Okay, As was the days of Noah, they were put after the flood in the pit and kept there. And the end times, this pit is opened and the world starts getting dark rather rapidly. Now, even though there's a lot of chapters in between, Revelation 9 has a cousin passage in Revelation 20. Revelation 20, for many people, is a very hard chapter to understand. But just remember, the pit, bottomless pit being opened, and the spirits that were put there, according to 2 Peter and Jude 6, way back then, okay, are going to be loosed, as was the days of Noah. What went wrong in the days of Noah is going to be let loose on the world again. And this is where we come to Revelation 20, verse 1. I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key of the bottomless pit. Well, this is exactly what we just read about in Revelation 9, somebody coming down with a key to the bottomless pit. And he seized the dragon, the serpent, and bound him for a thousand years. Now, many people who love the book of Revelation, think this is sometime future, that this is going to happen in a literal future millennium. Uh, No, this happened at the first coming of Christ. This is the age of the church. This is why the Great Commission could take place in lands that were under the veil of darkness. And it says, then it threw him in the pit and shut it, that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were ended. In other words, that's not to saying that Satan can't do anything, that there's no such thing as a demon oppression and such like that, but it does say that the nations of the world, and we're particularly here thinking of the Gentile nations of the world, uh, Satan can no longer control them the way he did before the first coming of Christ. And then for a long time, that's what thousand years, you want to take that literally Uh, The people who take this very literally, uh, I can give them a pretty hard time because I guarantee you chapters just before and just after this, they will not take literally, but they'll say this has to be taken literally. Why? A thousand years is a very long time, but it says at the end of verse 3, after that, he must be loosed for a little while. In other words, the world's going to revert back to the darkness before Christ. You drop down to verse 7 of Revelation 20, it says this, And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be loosed from his prison, the pit, and will come out to deceive, how? 
darkness, blindness, the nations which are at the four corners of the earth, and those led astray and led into apostasy, led into open rebellion against God, he will gather them for the final battle against God's people and obviously Jesus himself, and of course, he will lose that fight, okay? So what's the days of Noah have to do with the coming of the Son of Man? It's the spirits who corrupted the world to such a degree that it brought on a flood to kill everyone in the world except for Noah, his sons, and their wives. And the animals, obviously, in the ark to repopulate the earth, they, they weren't to blame for what these angels and people had done. But basically, Jesus is saying it's going to be deja vu. What happened then is a preview to the end. And if we don't understand the beginning, we're not going to understand the ending. And we're going to be looking at our world and seeing things are going nuts. And then there's going to be a lot of remedies offered to us because I would imagine you're concerned for our church, our country, our culture. I am deeply, deeply concerned. I have little grandchildren. I can't imagine what kind of world they're going to have to face and such. And so we want to make sure we get to the cause. I uh, just now want to quote some non-biblical sources that describe the same event. And notice I've spent an entire episode and more than half of this episode doing the early church fathers and before that extensive scriptural explanation. But now it's time that we can look at, and it's always in this order. You reverse the order and go to private revelation before public revelation, divine revelation. You're going to be in big trouble, but as long as you stay in this order, I'm going to read to you Anne Catherine Emmerich and from her book, The Dolores Passion of Our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what she wrote. In the center of hell, I saw a dark and horrible-looking abyss. Into this, Lucifer was cast and after first being strongly secured with chains, thick clouds of sulfurous black smoke arose from its fearful depths and enveloped in its frightful form. I was likewise told, if I remember rightly, that he will be unchained for a time 50 or 60 years before the year of Christ 2000. A number of demons are to be let loose much earlier than Lucifer in order to tempt men. That's Anne Catherine Emmerich basically giving her vision of hell, the pit, the bottomless pit, Satan being chained. This is Second Peter. This is Jude. This is Revelation 9. This is Revelation 20. Private Revelation 2. This is from... The Catechism of the Catholic Church, section 675, before Christ's second coming, the church must pass through a final trial that will shake the faith of many believers. And the reason I'm doing this, because if we're at those times, and I can't say for sure if we are, uh, I think we could be. I also think this could be perhaps a dress rehearsal for those times. But Jesus thought enough of the trials that will come at that time 
to explicitly warn us. If you were a convert to the Catholic faith in the early church, say around the third century or so, as part of your baptismal instruction would be warnings about the Antichrist, warnings about the end times deception. St. Paul, when he founded one of his earliest churches in Thessalonica, he wrote letters to them, First and Second Thessalonians. Big chunks of those early letters to these brand new Catholics regarded the second coming of Christ, the deception of the Antichrist, the falling away of the great apostasy. These were basic instructions that sometimes we don't really grasp or we get off the internet or we hear from private revelation. And I just quoted you private revelation, but it's after I gave you very extensive scripture and church teaching first. And then Catechism 677 says, the church will enter the glory of the kingdom only through this final Passover, with God's victory over the final unleashing of evil. Okay, there are times when the church goes up and church goes down, church goes up, church goes down, good times, bad times, and then the church recovers, but there will be a time, a final unleashing of evil that will be unlike every other time in the history of the church. And there's only one thing that can defeat that, and of course, that's Christ himself coming. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus Christ. And then finally, a quotation from a young cardinal, the future Pope St. John Paul II in Philadelphia in 1976. Quote, we are now standing in the face of the greatest historical confrontation humanity has gone through. I do not think that wide circles of the American society or wide circles of the Christian community realize this fully. We are now facing the final confrontation between the church and the anti-church of the gospel versus the anti-gospel. We must be prepared to undergo great trials in the not-too-distant future. Now, I don't want to leave you without an application. And we've looked at the effect. We all see the effect. If our eyes are open, something really haywire is going on with our world and church. Okay. We have seen the cause. Okay. And if this cause is a, what shall I say, the preview, the forerunner of the end times, or perhaps the end times itself, we can't say for sure at this point, but there are indications that this could be something different from what has gone before. So what should be our primary response? I'd like to give you a real quick quotation. I'm kind of laughing because, you know, I like politics. I've been involved in pro-life politics. I vote every election cycle and everything else, but I can see with the condition of our country, our culture, and the stuff going on in the church, that everybody is going to be utterly fixated, fascinated, and enamored with whoever gets elected in the next cycle or two. This is what Chuck Colson said. The saving of the American culture will not arrive on Air Force One. Our political system 
which we do need to be involved in, don't get me wrong, but if you're seeing the effect and you now know the cause, don't let your primary response be political. Certainly be involved in the political system, but it can't defeat the root cause of what's ailing the world. It's an often quoted passage, but I think conservative Catholics and Protestants tend to forget this. St. Paul said in Ephesians 6, verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. You have to fight in a way that you can defeat this thing. David defeated Goliath. David's men defeated Goliath's brothers. Okay? God took care of the Nephilim in the early church. Joshua and Caleb took care of the giants that were like trees walking compared to themselves in the unholy land. We have been here before, but if your primary response is political, great. You will be defeated. I am 100% assured of that. Something has to give first before politics can even work. Paul goes on, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the wiles of the devil. For we are not, not contending against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against the powers, hear this, against the world rulers of this present darkness, against the spiritual host of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Okay? Now, real specific, how would this apply? I would dare say there is a time, approximately, I'm just going to guess, 60 to 90 seconds a week that should be your primary focus for combating this final unleashing of evil that John Paul II and the Catechism and the Scriptures warn about. Now, what's those 60 to 90 seconds? I'm talking about the prayers in the course of the Mass, which are like incense we see in the book of Revelation are taken to the very throne of God, and then there's a response. When we pray for our church, we better pray for our church. She's in crisis. We better pray for our country. This isn't time just to kind of zone out and think of what's cooking in the crock pot back home or something, or what do I have to do Monday morning? Concentrate. That could be some of the most important seconds of your entire week. And rather than simply watching, you know, the pollsters and all this other stuff, concentrate like you've never concentrated before in the prayers of the Mass for our country, for our families, for our church leaders. This is all-out spiritual warfare, and this is where should be the center of your efforts, okay? Now, certainly the rosary should be something uh, big because we know from the third chapter of the Bible that the woman— fulfilled in Mary, is going to have a vital role along with her son in defeating the serpent. And so she's going to play a big role in this. But remember, I'm starting with the Mass, the prayers in the Mass, which they're not casual. This is what's keeping our planet from exploding at this point, okay? And then we have the Rosary, and then I would like to recommend a book 
It's called The Manual of Spiritual Warfare, composed and collected by Paul Thigpen. This is a great little book, and if you want a book for the days, living in days like the days of Noah, I can't think of a finer book, The Manual for Spiritual Warfare. And in this prayer book, there's 300 and almost 50 pages of prayers. My favorite is on page 275. Glorious St. Michael, valiant commander of the angelic host, fierce archangel warrior, I need your protection in this daily combat against the ancient enemies of God. And I ask you to take me under your wing to train me as a soldier for the army of heaven. Teach me to be strong in battle, brave under assault, firm in virtue, unflinching in faith, persevering in loyalty to my comrades, fully armed and ready with the divinely made weapons and armor of this spiritual combat. St. Michael, lead me into the fray, and by God's grace I will follow in the strength of Christ my King under the bright banner of Our Lady before whom the serpent flees. Amen. That's the type of prayer that you need in these days. This is our primary response. And again, it's prayer. And I'm not trying to make this, um, you know, by and by, spiritual, up in the clouds, abstract. No, this is a spiritual warfare. Uh, St. Michael the Archangel prayer is critical. I find it very interesting that Anne Catherine Emmerich, seeing this whole picture of hell and the demons and chains and everything, and then they're being released. It's in the same general time period when Pope Leo XIII received his divine warning about Satan coming after the church in which uh, his assistants thought he had a heart attack. He didn't. He saw something terrifying that was coming in the later years in which we were living, and he went in and composed the prayer of St. Michael the Archangel. So those are the things, the Mass, the Rosary, Paul Thigpen's Manual of Spiritual Warfare. These are the things that are primary response to get at the cause of the effects of what we're seeing in our world. I'm Steve Wood, your host, and you've been listening to episode 356 of Faith and Family Radio. Faith and Family is a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. Visit us online at dads.org to order copies of Faith and Family broadcasts and to learn more about Catholic family life.